in the next five years, I anticipate that there'll be a lot of pressure on the manufacturers of medicines as well as the providers of diagnostics to really demonstrate the added value of taking a, a precision approach. I think what COVID has shown us is that the exercise of imagining very different realities from the world that you're operating today and the assumptions that it will continue is incredibly valuable and necessary to have a strategy that stands up. Welcome to this edition of the ZS Associates podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. Those of you familiar with our format can normally host a discussion interviewing a panel of speakers. However, for this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. My colleague Matilda Malish will be leading our discussion and interviewing me. Today, our topic is the future of oncology. Thank you, Jen. Really excited to join you in today's discussion. It is also my pleasure to reintroduce Malik Kamen, who we actually hosted a few episodes ago. He's a partner in the ZS Zurich office, leading our EU oncology team. And today, he will bring in his expertise in pipeline and disease strategy. A while ago, we talked about the world post-COVID and reflected on some of the potential future trends in the healthcare industry. We mentioned it is likely to expect a shift in sites of care, budget pressures, and there will be an emphasis on demonstrating value versus focusing on incremental benefit. With all this in mind, I was actually wondering how has COVID accelerated trends within oncology specifically? And should we be expecting some fundamental changes in the oncology landscape? Uh, such a great question, Matilda. And I know one that you've been thinking about a ton too. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's really pushed into the forefront, the idea of scenario planning and really being able to anticipate and plan for the unexpected by looking at extremes and how they're going to change business. So, I mean, looking at, at COVID, I think what it's done, it, it has accelerated what we see as kind of three different worlds that could emerge. Um, and we are at inflection points now. And, and, and I think what we see is three potential realities. So the first is what we're calling this kind of high science world where oncology is focused on the white spaces. So if we think about what that means, it's really these rare indications while we look for kind of this next big thing. Competition is going to be really high, partnerships low, and the focus is going to remain on physicians with the value proposition that's very product and data driven. Another world, though, that we could see happening that's been particularly accelerated by COVID is this competitive pricing one, right, where we focus very much, again, downstream on treatment and care costs. And the competition is incredibly high to be the most kind of cost-effective option. And incentive for partnership and innovation is going to decrease. The focus is going to shift to payers, and the value propositions are going to be about cost-effectiveness and take more of a short-term focus. And then I think the third world, um, and that's probably the, the most divergent from the worlds that we're used to operating in, is this idea of prevention and wellness, where we're fundamentally shifting where we're focusing on to be much earlier on in the, the patient care pathway and focus on population-based outcomes about prevention versus crisis management. And I think that that world's particularly fascinating, right? Because it really forces us to reevaluate the way that we play and requires a transformational shift in how we're defining the customer and engagement. Jen, I really like that summary. I would say for me, the high science world 
would be true if you believe that there's likely going to be less long-term impact from COVID. That's kind of a continuation of where we're at today and uh, getting back to new normal that looks a lot more like the old normal. The competitive pricing world for me is one in which the pressure on healthcare systems, in particular the US, having a lot of family who are involved in emergency care and watching hospitals struggle with budget because the normal sets of procedures are not coming through the door. One could imagine that all that cost pressure both in the US and in Europe becomes a straw that breaks the camel's back. And we've been talking about a number of different things that could happen in oncology that we've been waiting to happen in oncology and, and maybe COVID finally is the thing. I'm most excited about prevention and wellness because I think COVID has meaningfully accelerated the time to market for digital and, and virtual engagement, uh, digital and connected health. And so that's the one that I'm excited about. And I, I wouldn't put a probability on whether or not I think it's going to fully come to fruition, but I'm excited about the possibility. That's super interesting. Based on what I'm hearing, it seems that ultimately your strategic choices will actually depend on a couple of things. Competitive landscape, where you're focusing in the patient journey, who your customers are, who you're partnering with, and what your strategy around data is. If we then look into each of these worlds, what would you say are the opportunities and some of the key decisions that would enable pharma companies to stay competitive? Yeah, so I mean, I think that's a maybe it's a great way to look at each of these worlds and how they're they're different and the opportunities that exist. So if we start with the the high science world, so we've described this as as basically a world where innovation is incremental. And it's very analogous to the direction that we're on now and kind of pre post COVID. Um, the focus is is really going to be on on the white spaces. We know that the main five cancers: breast cancer, multiple myeloma non-small cell lung cancer, prostate, NHL, that's really representing about 70% of the market now. Um, and and, and it's, it's saturated. And so it, it is going to exist in a much smaller place of, of these kind of rare indications. And so I, I think the result of, of this is that obviously we're continuing to play in the same space, right? We're looking much further down the, the patient journey on the tail end of diagnosis, treatment, and management. And the, the kind of the hook that we're looking for there is this much more kind of personalized angle within it. But in that, the customer is going to continue to be the physician. Like that's where pharma has traditionally been most comfortable playing. And really in this model, it's going to continue to be. So value propositions are, are really going to be very product and data focused, but we're likely to see MSLs becoming increasingly important in, in driving that interaction. Um, but I think we will also see the whole customer experience around the way that farm is engaging with them to change and to become an increasing differentiator, particularly when we're thinking about these much more niche patient populations that are gonna require a lot more decision-making, um, education and partnership to enable. I don't know, Malik, if you have any thoughts about like the competition and, and data angle of this world. Yeah, building on what you said, Jen, I think in the high science world, our competitors continue to be other biopharmaceutical companies. Our partners are potentially software and other data provider companies. But where the real rubber meets the road is in the data. I think in the high science world, having proprietary control over your own data sets 
still is absolutely critical to winning. And frankly, that's where we see most of our clients right now hunkering down and really trying to build that data infrastructure and really trying to build those uh, competitive moats uh, and investing heavily in, in data. Uh, but it, it makes a fairly large assumption, which is that, which is based on a legacy truth, which is that pharma really has kind of monopoly access to the best data. Uh, and I'm not sure that assumption holds true over the next five years. As you think about ecosystems generating their own data, as you think about non-traditional healthcare players and partners generating their own interesting data sets. So we'll see. So with the number of competitors per MOA and per patient segment significantly going up, it seems to me the high science world will actually be increasingly characterized by commodity market-like behavior. I could see there will be an element of increasing pressure to create that superior customer experience and, and find incremental differences in data to truly differentiate. And in theory, all this combined with COVID impact should actually shift the power dynamics to pairs. And this brings me to the second world you initially talked about, the competitive pricing world. I think you're absolutely right, Matilda. I mean, I think this kind of competitive pricing world we talked about it is not that far-fetched when we think about some of the, the trends um, and signals that we've been seeing from the market, right? If we look at the top 10 selling pharmaceutical drugs, six of the top 10 are oncology products. Um, biosimilars have been knocking at the door for ages. They, they've already gotten into to Europe, um, but they've managed to stay out of the US, but that now is slowly starting to break down. And when we also think about just the pipeline of oncology products, so many of them are, are combination therapies, which are gonna add immense budgetary pressure. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of signals that, that pricing is going to continue to be a really top priority and that oncology can no longer fly under the radar. Um, and so in this world, um, I think we're going to continue to be focusing at the end of the journey, primarily on, on treatment and ongoing management, but our, our customer focus does shift and it becomes increasingly about the payer and the value proposition is much more cost effectiveness focused. And so while we're going to be thinking about physicians and patients, their choices are going to be significantly restrained by the limitations that payers impose on them, particularly in areas where we see generics available. I mean, I think we can point to examples that we've seen in the UK with guidance from NICE on, on using biosimilars as the first option for patients. And I think there are expectations that we're now going to start seeing similar kind of um, restrictions even in the US. So I think within this, it's gonna shift our, our customer engagement model to much more stress payer engagement in these value-based selling models. I think again, on the, the competition side, you're, you're absolutely right. It's like this very intense competition within uh, pharmaceutical companies. And I think the end result is that the incremental innovation, which we've been seeing for a while is gonna really decline, particularly when viable alternatives are, are in the space. So on the competitive front, Jen, as, as these indications become increasingly niche and our customers are taking uh, much more of a, a, a payer a focus and, uh, and a health system focus, I could certainly see the field forces getting uh, much smaller, uh, needing to have above country structures to support uh, the kinds of questions that customers are gonna have 
and the battleground really shifting from the oncologist office into more of the CEO's office and uh, the types of resources you need here shifting away from really high science resources into much more of an, an executive slash account management uh, type of person uh, who's really uh, making sure you're maintaining a, a strong long-term relationship with these entities. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder also if it will have negative implications on the desire for more personalized medicine, right? Because I, I think, you know, by necessity, when you start thinking about this kind of more cost effectiveness, um, it becomes challenging to, to personalize when you're, you're looking to standardize at the same time. I couldn't agree with you more, Jen. I'm a personal believer in the promise of precision medicine, but it has not broadly been proven yet. And so in the next five years, I anticipate that there'll be a lot of pressure on the manufacturers of medicines, as well as the providers of diagnostics to really demonstrate the added value of taking a, a precision approach. It's certainly adding costs on a per patient basis uh, that you need to demonstrate that you're taking back out of the system somewhere. Yeah, and I, I think it, it also kind of talks to the, the point of what is what is the value of data? And you alluded to this. It, it, it ends up being much more kind of in, internal and kind of cost effectiveness data that becomes a lot more valuable versus some of the kind of forward-looking kind of precision medicine and, and really being able to tailor treatment that is where the value is placed. So I think it will have pretty significant implications on, on data strategies. So we talked about the two worlds where fundamental difference is who your customer is, how you generate your value proposition and engage these customers. And what they have in common is they're still playing downstream, so to say. It's kind of a short-term view of uh, crisis management. But thinking a little bit about broader payer goals who manage budgets across populations, um, oncology is a category where there is a huge opportunity for them to do that. What would you say, how would this play out in the world that is more upstream and focusing on the prevention? I think actually the prevention world is the one that most closely aligns to the, the healthcare vision that payers, providers, and patients have, right? It's about looking at, at people. It's not even about the patient because actually the journey starts before someone presents. It's much more about population health and thinking about how to prevent conditions. And so instead of thinking about this as a patient journey, it's really about the care continuum. And so what's really interesting about this world is that we're, we're really fundamentally shifting the way that we're looking at it. And we're, we're putting national level health as the priority. And so we're starting to engage with a very different population. And this means government health bodies really become who we're looking to partner with versus playing at the individual level. And by individual, I mean individual physician, individual patient. Um, and so by necessity, we're then decreasing emphasis on, on the individual to look at the more systemic and holistic value um, and solutions that we can bring that are going to prevent illness. Um, and so I think this is really something that requires a, a really new model of engagement with a lot more diverse customers and a much more evolved value proposition. And, and what does that mean in terms of how we deliver it? I think if we, we think about, again, the competition, um, it totally changes who 
who our competitors are, right? It, it is such um, a bigger group because actually, are we really competing with people? Or are we much more looking to partner and partner outside of, of healthcare? Uh, so Malik, I know you also have a lot of really passionate ideas about, about this topic too. Yeah, I agree on the competitor or partner angle, Jen. I think it really opens up some very interesting possibilities in terms of creating uh, consortia and biopharma partnerships. Uh, the data in this world is going to be highly democratized already. And so I would not anticipate monopolistic ownership of proprietary data sets to be the way to get ahead here. Uh, this will be much more about playing in a sandbox of, of stakeholders who, um, who all are bringing slightly different things to the table and, and doing so in a way that actually um, encourages, uh, encourages more collaboration. Of course, this all sounds a little bit like tree hugging for a boy from Berkeley. And so the question then becomes, how do we actually make money out of it? This, is, this, this all sounds beautiful, but how do we make money out of it? And I think that's a question, that's a very legitimate question that biopharma has yet to answer. We definitely have clients who are conducting experiments as we speak to try to, to figure this out. So, uh, some of the key questions are around what's the cut point? Like, do we actually get involved in prevention or is that too early? Should we get involved at the screening stage and early diagnosis stage? Um, what, what exactly is our role in that as a medicines company versus a diagnostics company? Should we be partnering with a liquid biopsy and circulating DNA um, technologies to, to try to enable that? So uh, it's certainly very exciting, uh, but still pretty undefined. So we've discussed how each of these scenarios could potentially play out, um, but I'm, I'm wondering if we think about our listeners that are working in pharma companies, what are some of the questions they should be reflecting upon now? I think they, it's not about which of these worlds is, is definitely going to happen and then planning for that. I think this is all about scenario planning. And I think what COVID has shown us is that the exercise of imagining very different realities from the world that you're operating today and the assumptions that it will continue is incredibly valuable and necessary to have a strategy that, that stands up. And so you know, if I'm a franchise head and I'm thinking about my oncology portfolio and the assets that I'm developing or need to acquire, am I purely thinking about the high science world and that everything's going to stay the same for the next five to 10 years? Or actually, am I prepared if we suddenly shift to a competitive pricing world or one where chronic care is no longer the forefront? How am I anticipating that? How am I um, mitigating that risk and preparing the organization if we need to shift course? You know, similarly, what if I'm the head of a real world data and evidence generation strategy? Am I building a strategy that's really only viable in the high science world? What about when a market event comes and happens that's gonna require me to play in the prevention world? What am I doing today that would enable us to be able to pivot and successfully play? Jen, I really like that. And building on your last point there around data strategy, we see all of our clients making significant investments in their data strategy. But something that's easy to overlook is data governance and data partnerships with the outside world. 
this can't be just a myopic exercise where we think about building our own data lakes and our own marts and our own analytics. Uh, should the prevention and wellness world come true, we're likely going to be operating in a much more democratized data sandbox where we need to be prepared to be sharing data across entities who we normally would never have considered doing that with. And, and are we ready to do those kinds of things today? So point very well taken about this is an exercise of pressure testing the assumptions that you're making for these big investments today. We have seen how COVID has pushed the idea of scenario planning to the forefront. It is becoming increasingly important to be able to anticipate and plan for the unexpected by looking at the extremes and how they could change the business. When it comes to oncology, we discuss three different worlds that could emerge. High science, highly competitive world where manufacturers focus on identifying the white spaces. Cost-cutting world, where the emphasis is on cost-effective value propositions. Prevention world, going upstream and thinking about the overall population health and how to actually prevent conditions. Across these three worlds, there are fundamental differences in the competitive landscape, who the key customer is, and where in the patient journey pharma is playing. What that ultimately means for pharma players is not to think about which of these worlds is definitely going to happen and then plan for that particular world. It comes down to actually doing the exercise of imagining these very different realities from the world you're currently operating in and then pressure testing all of the assumptions you're making for the big investment today to ensure your overall strategy stands up. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the ZS Associates podcast. Thank you for joining us.